The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in the book of Daniel, um, chapter 10. Got some weird stuff going on here, as usual. Um, We are going to pick up here in chapter 10. Uh, Emily read it for us already, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray, ask for God's help in understanding this and applying it to our lives and what this means for us. And then we are going to dive right in, okay? Uh, Jesus, we're grateful for this chapter, and we pray that as we look through the life of Daniel, that you would mentor us to experience your love this morning and be strengthened by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Mentoring is one of these uh, dynamics that are in a lot of professions. Uh, A lot of people have mentoring. In some ways, it's kind of lost in some ways within our culture, but um, you think of like the old apprentice models, right, where you, uh, I think of my friends who are construction workers, or how long it is, years and years to become a master and all that stuff. Uh, my brother-in-law is a pediatrician, and it seemed like the longest dating relationship ever for him to go from graduating uh, from being a doctor, so he's technically a doctor, to actually being like a practicing doctor is like, what was it, like fellowships and <laughs> residencies, and I don't know, like it just seemed like... I kept asking him, like, are you a doctor yet? And he's like, well, you know, kind (laughs) of. I'm like, okay, well, you graduated. You got the paper, right? Mentoring is a major part of it. Why? Because, um, like any area of our lives, we can know the facts of what it means for whatever area of life it is, uh, but the living out those facts and finessing them and how they get ordered are very different for everybody and how we have to live those out. So, taking forever, like the longest dating relationship ever for doctors is like, you can know the anatomy of the human body, you can know how medicine works and all this stuff, but patient care, how you deliver information, how you actually do an exam, how you help find solutions, those aren't things you get from a textbook. So we have here, similar to that, like just for every other area of our lives, we have here Daniel living out, what does it mean to be a believer in a difficult world? Here Daniel draws us into this reality that if you are a Christian or if you're thinking about being a Christian or if you've been a Christian for a long time, we all know um, life is hard. (laughs) It is extremely hard. And not only that, being a Christian is even harder, right? I don't know if you get sold this bill of goods of like, if you become a Christian, it's like um, Oreos and daffodils for the rest of your life. Like those would be like, like Oreos... Oreos are my favorite thing in the whole wide world. I wish that we could do Oreos for communion. Like, that's just the way I, I live. But Christian life is not, like, I mean, you, in a certain sense, when you become a Christian, you're like, okay, Jesus died for my sin. It's all great from here. Nothing can come against me. And then you live a, a week as being a Christian, and it's hard. Daniel invites us, he mentors us by his experience in this chapter into living a life, understanding what it means to be a believer in a hard age in hard circumstances. I, this is why we read biographies. I just finished a biography this last week of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Does anybody know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? If, you, you, if you've been around, you know. <laughs> like, I quote him all the time, right? He was a pastor and theologian um, who, on the one hand, was a pacifist, and then on the other hand, uh, joined the assassination plot against Hitler. So he lived a life intention, and while I care about the details of his life, it's more helpful to live through the emotions of his life to understand how does that impact my life. I'm not planning any assassination attempts, just to clarify that. 
<laughs> just to be clear, uh, thank you, FBI. Like just, <laughs> but just saying, it's the emotional level of working through other people's lives that help us understand how to calibrate to the world around us, what's going on, right? So Daniel, he mentors us to find our strength in this journey with God. He mentors us through his example in chapter 10 to find our, our strength and here's the main point of this passage. Here's what we're, we're driving at, and I'll kind of break it down, and then we'll start getting in. The love of God is the strength of your pilgrim life, right? Just like um, as I prayed earlier, we are not home yet, right? We are refugees in a certain sense here of the promised land of Jesus. We're going somewhere. That's what it means to be a pilgrim. We are on our way there. We're not there yet, so that's our pilgrim life. And what is our strength, our sustaining help, Right? What is that going to be? Daniel draws us into this reality that it is the love of God. The love of God himself for you. That's where we're going to land in this passage. His experience that drives home this reality. So we're going to see through this chapter four different experiences that Daniel has that I think map onto the life of a believer, life of a Christian. If you are a believer or you want to be a believer, these are four experiences that we're going to have to reckon with as we walk through our life and find at the heart of our strength is God's love himself. So, we're going to jump in here, verses 1 to 9. The first experience that Daniel has is fainting faith. Fainting faith. Here, Daniel uh, 10, 1 through 9. I'm, it's not a super long chapter, so I'm going to read our verses for us as we work through this. Cool? We get congregational affirmation all along the way. I can't see your mouth, so if you're saying, like, no, I can't see it. So, uh, verses 1, uh, 1 to 2, we'll start, we'll start there. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was of great conflict. And he understood the word, and it understood, and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. So we'll pause there, and we'll finish up here in a second. If just to calibrate ourselves to where this is in the life of Daniel, um, let me throw up. I did a a profound amount of research on this and opened up my ESV study Bible and copied and pasted the timeline of Daniel <laughs> to help us understand what exactly was going on here. So uh, it, oh, the white kind of blinds it out. But anyhow, so you can see how Daniel's life is laid out here. And you see here we are in uh, chapter 10, which is uh, 536 AD or BC, sorry, 536 BC. Daniel has been in captivity since... 605 BC, remember, this is the weird part about history, like they all do the numbers in reverse before the AD BC thing. So um, this lines up to about 60 years. He's been 60 years or so in captivity. He has been 60 years in Babylon. He's seen a couple regime changes. And the important part to notice is not only has he been here for 60 years, but remember here, verse 1, to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, as a reminder, this was his enslavement name his pagan name that he was given. As, uh, the name actually meant long live the king, effectively, right? He has been enslaved away from God's promised land, not only under God's judgment for all the sins of Israel, but he's then been named after a God who opposes his God, his God at home, right? He has been enslaved. We can take that timeline down. It's, it's served its purpose. He has been enslaved, and he has been uh, there for 60 years. He's probably about 70, 75 years old, you know, been a believer then for about 70 years or something like that. 
And after reading the Bible and meditating on God's word, here he comes to this experience of just absolute rock bottom mourning. He's looking at his Bible and he's saying, God, I am just exhausted. You can imagine what it's like for him to over the last 60 years. If you've been a Christian for any time, you can probably relate to this. Yet again this week, hearing news of a pastor who is just totally burned out in ministry, destroyed his ministry and his church. How many of us have experienced the rise and fall of churches, the rise and fall of believers? I thought they were walking with us in Jesus, and now they're not. Seeing people fall away, seeing people make crazy life decisions. It's just exhausting. Not, and maybe that's in your own experience, right? I thought, I'm a believer, and then, you know, here's this experience that I've had. It is an exhausting reality. And Daniel here then walks us into, not only is it exhausting, but it can just honestly lead to faith that's fainting. Let's pick up here verse 8. Let me throw up this next slide here. Here is a main, main point within this section. You see strength mentioned like five times in this chapter, five or six times. So I was left alone and saw this great vision in verse 8, and no strength was left in me. My, mere, uh, my radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then verse 16 to 17, after he's talked to Gabriel for a little bit, I retained no strength, for now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Verse 7, right? So not only has he lost strength, but hey, you know how you feel after you're like, you're just like so hungry that like you can't even like put the toast in the toaster? You know what I mean? And, Daniel, and I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and Daniel as well, and they fled and to hide themselves, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Daniel's strength is totally gone. He is totally depleted. He is, in effect, left with, re- with reckoning with God's word, what does God say, and trembling with no strength. He is absolutely at his wit's end. I think this experience is similar to many of us when we look at God's word and we say, God, if this is true, how can these realities still happen, right? God, if your word is, he, he's here meditating on his, Bible, on his Bible. It's like, okay, God, you've got this word for your people, <laughs> and yet I don't understand how any of this is going to happen. I don't understand how any of this is going to come through. I don't understand how any of this life is going to make sense. Daniel is, in effect, left with fainting faith where he says, God, I don't understand how you can both be true and these realities continue to happen. I don't understand how you can be true and good and righteous, and yet all of these evils in this world, all of these exhausting experiences continue to happen. We're going to see uh, next what happens with his faith. But first we need to recognize this reality. Daniel is not kicked out of the house because his faith is fainting. Struggling to understand God's word, struggling to understand God's realities in the dark world, is a critical part of a life of faith. We will struggle to understand, God, if you've been a believer for any amount of time, you're just going to come to the end of your ropes and be like, God, I I just understand how this can happen. Like, why is this allowed? Why do you allow these things in my family, my friends, in my own life? Why is this existence still what I face? You are in good company because that is exactly what the book of Psalms is all about, right? The book of Psalms, I've heard it said, 
about 70% of the Psalms are written in a minor key, right? They're written not only in a sad key, right, so to speak, but they often struggle and they say directly to God, these are God's own inspired words, God, won't you wake up and do something about this? It's that fainting faith experience. God, I, I don't understand. This is an experience for all Christians, all believers along the way. It doesn't mean that you're less than or that somehow you're like on the back end of the bus of, a, of the believers to have a struggle with understanding how God's realities match with the world around us. We're going to keep going on forward here, but, and there are other factors in play for Daniel. But you recognize here the just the beginning of this experience. We are drawn into Daniel's fainting faith that like, God, I'm at the end of my ropes. What do you got for me? Because this doesn't make sense. Now we're going to pick up here verse 10 to 14, and we're going to talk about the experience of unseen battles, right? This is the part of the chapter that's going to weird, weird you out. I promise it's going to be a little less weird at the end of this, but chapter, chapter 10, verse 10 to 14, talking about unseen battles. So let me read this for you, and let me just kind of put this in context. Ever see a Marvel movie? This is a Marvel movie in the chapter, okay? This is what we're talking about. This is Thor and Loki and all of that stuff. And behold, a man touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees and said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been seen to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel. From the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I was left there with the kings of Persia. Um, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So, when he's talking about princes, he's talking about angels and demons and all that Frank Peretti stuff, right? So here, here we are in this unseen world of all of these angels and demons fighting. Like, this is like, if you've ever seen the movie Constantine with uh, my bro, um, Keanu Reeves, uh, have you ever seen that? This is what we're talking about, right? Keanu, actually, Keanu wrote this chapter in the Bible, if you didn't know that. No, I'm kidding. Um, this is actually similar to if you think, if you've seen Doctor Strange, right? This is that scene where they're like in the astral plane, like fighting and they're ghosts and like moving stuff over. I'm not saying that stuff's real. I'm just saying it's kind of like that, right? I'm just trying to give you like pictures of how to understand this. This is unseen stuff going on. We are briefly given a window into the unseen spiritual world and their engagement with the visible world, right? Gabriel comes to Daniel, is delayed for a battle with, you know, these demonic forces, what they call the kings of Persia. And Michael, his bro, his bestie, helps him uh, defeat them. So let me kind of give some explanation here. We'll look at a few verses, and then we'll figure out what this means for our lives together, okay? This is not a major feature, but there is, this is an invitation to the reality that there are spiritual forces in this world, right? This is not a major feature of the Bible in the sense of, like, of the top ten things you need to worry about. Um, you must have a plan for demonic activity, right? But it is real, and it is something to be aware of. And so here is kind of my, my kind of summary of how this chapter invites us into this. I think the Bible teaches us that God appointed at the beginning of the world angels to rule over and assist mankind with the heavenly realm to accomplish his plans throughout the world. 
and many, if not most of these rulers and their assistants were part of Satan's rebellion and now abuse their spiritual authority to afflict mankind and oppose the church, the body of Christ, and God's renewal of all things. So, I know that's a lot. You can get my sermon notes. I just read directly from the transcript. I promise it's there. Here, let me, uh, let me throw up a couple verses for us to look at here and then kind of draw this into what this means for us. So, Psalm 82, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So, I think here you see a picture of what we're talking about at the beginning, right? Here's God with these spiritual powers and authorities. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, right? Here you have the demons accusing God of injustice. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Here you have the angels appealing. Then you, they, have neither, um, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk in their darkness. And the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So here you have God standing over the entire world, speaking of all the nations, and yet here there's this court of spiritual powers that stands before God, and they are involved in the affairs of the world in some way or fashion. Right? So that, that seems a very simple reading of Psalm 82. I think this is why in the temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4, you have Satan offer Christ all the nations of the earth. Right? Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then kind of a few like little single verses from the epistles. You have Colossians 2:15, where it talks about the resurrection of Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him that is Christ. And then 1 Peter 3, 2, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subject to him. Again, here you have John at the, um, he puts the whole world as having been under the power of Satan. In 1 John 1, 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay. With all that said, (laughs) I'm just trying to say, I'm not trying to be like weird. And I'm not trying to say, like, there's a demon in your car that's causing you to have to go to the mechanic. I'm just saying there's just some issues that are at the spiritual realm that you have to be aware of, but they are not, like, the biggest deal in terms of your spiritual life. They are important, but not the biggest deal. This is often used, this chapter, this is a uh, a context for understanding um, how Christians misapply this passage. Um, They will look at this passage and say, ah, there's territorial spirits. You got the kings of Persia who are ruling over this whole territory. And now we as believers, we need to do a spiritual map of the whole area that we're at. And we need to start naming demons and spiritual territory and all this sort of stuff. And honestly, I just kind of be like, got a dentist appointment. Too weird for me, bro. I just don't think that's what the Bible holds out. Like, it's just not like a major factor. Like, you never see in the New Testament any believer or Jesus himself talking about like spirit mapping and figuring out who the demons are that control an area or anything like that. It's acknowledged. It's a part of their experience. But in a certain sense, for believers especially, it's above our pay grade. Like it's just not what we're called to do. Like you notice in the book of Romans, Satan is not even mentioned until like the last five verses of the book. Got 16 chapters. It's not till like chapter 16, verse 20 
that Satan is even mentioned. Same thing with the book of Ephesians, right? You got the whole book of Ephesians, and then Satan's kind of like, you know, he's the closer in the back end of it. Like, it's not a big deal in terms of Ephesians. It's acknowledged, but it's not something that we plant, that we press into like a major feature, like let's all figure out what the spiritual territory is like. This is, I think, um, we need to have a reality, recognize that it's a reality, but that not, we don't need to be um, obsessed with it. I do think that when you ever start doing like, when we started as a church and we started talking about what does it mean to love Manchester, and we started saying things like, well, it seems like uh, the people here have a, have a deep cynicism in their lives, a high sense of independence in their lives. We see that in our own lives. There is in some way you're beginning to kind of say like, well, here's their spiritual forces going on here that we're acknowledging, but that's not what we're called to do with that. We're called to take those things and in a certain sense, submit them just to Jesus and let Jesus take care of them. I do think, though, for your spiritual experience, this chapter is important for another reason. If we have in our kind of toolbox of how we understand our own experience in our life in Jesus, God's sovereignty and our sinfulness, we will get totally wigged out when it comes to real problems in our lives. We will, if we only have sin and sovereignty, we have a situation where if I am struggling, like deeply struggling like Daniel with what is going on with my life. I have two ways to go. If it's God's sovereignty, God hates me. If it's my sin, I haven't repented enough. And you're left in this downward spiral of absolute despair and depression. I'm not saying that like problems in your life aren't caused by your sin. And I'm not saying that God doesn't lead you through difficult things. But there is a third reality here. There is a third spiritual realm of spiritual opposition that we need to be aware of. I remember the early days of the church plant, some of my darkest days when we were trying to begin the church plant, I wasn't doing anything wrong. God wasn't leading us through anything. He didn't hate me. I was just absolute and deep depression about what was going on. And Paul Buckley, our pastor, he was like, well, I think there's just spiritual opposition. We need to pray against spiritual opposition in this. And immediately feeling light and help in the situation. Right? We didn't claim, you know, territories and start doing any crazy stuff, you know, Paula White style or anything like that. Like, we were just saying, like, God, there's a third reality here. There are spiritual forces at play, and we need to just be aware of them. I just read a book on depression by uh, David Murray. Fantastic book. It's a little, like, 100-page book. Super helpful. Not once has he mentioned spiritual opposition as a way in which believers can just get blue and down in life. It's a way in which we need to be acknowledged that, you know what, there is demonic activity, and we, le- we take it to God. God's the one who handles it. We take it to him in prayer, but we need to acknowledge that it is a part of our spiritual life. Okay, if you got more questions on that, I promise I can answer them later. Um, with Google in hand, we'll figure it out. But we, everybody cool? We're not too weirded out? Like it's... Okay, we're going to move on? All right, I got thumbs up from the back. We're cool. Here we have... The third experience of Daniel's pilgrimage, we've seen how he has had fainting faith, and we can relate to that. God, how can you allow this stuff to happen? Unseen battles, okay, there's more going on than just me and God. There's a spiritual realm that does influence my existence. But there is also this personal dynamic as well that Daniel leads us into what we're calling painful words, verse 15 to 17. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, 
one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, my reason of the vision pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is in me. I think what's going on for Daniel is he's looking at what's, what Gabriel said, he's looking at God's word, and he is just saying, recognizing, I have nothing in me to accomplish anything of what's laid out here. I have no ability to change, to strengthen, to give my, my might or to get past what's go, what, what God has revealed, right? What you've said to me, I can't do. What you've revealed to me, I am unable to accomplish. He is what I think we can call, Daniel is running into the wall. This is an experience of the wall where a Christian, or a, a Christian runs into this experience of, I do not have the ability to move forward. I am stuck in whatever experience it is, right? This is a, uh, I got this term from this book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by my, Peter Scazzaro. The subtitle basically tells you what the book's about. It's impossibly spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. This book, fantastic. I read it recently. I'm taking our leadership team through it. Super, super helpful. Chapter four is all about the wall. And the wall is this experience of feeling like you are stuck. You can't move forward in your spiritual life. The sense that you're exhausted, that you've exhausted every ounce of who and what you are only to find that you can't change anything about your circumstances. You can't change anything about your growth. You are absolutely stuck. This experience may relate to many of you. You can feel this. This is absolutely common to the Christian life. It is universal. Everybody will run into the wall. The question is, do you embrace it as God's journey and pilgrimage for you, or do you freak out, blame God, and eject? The question of the wall is, are you going to reckon with your reality, with who you are, and your inability to change anything before God? Let me read you this is a story from that book, From Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, about a woman named Agnes. From the time she was a young girl, Agnes believed, not just believed, she was on fire. She wanted to do great things for God. She said things such as she wanted to love Jesus as he has never been loved before. Agnes had an undeniable calling. She wrote in her journal that my soul at present is in perfect peace and joy. She experienced a union with God that was so deep and so continual that it was uh, to her a rapture and ecstasy. She left her home, became a missionary, and gave everything for Jesus. However, after a while, it seemed as if God had abandoned her. At least that's how she felt. It felt to her. She started writing different words in her journal, words like, where is my faith? And she asked, Deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain? I have no faith. She struggled to pray. She still worked. She still served. She still smiled, but she struggled with this wall that didn't seem to move. This inner darkness continued on virtually year after year for nearly 50 years. God seemed absent. However, you may know Agnes by a different name as Mother Teresa. That was her experience for 50 years in her life with Jesus. 
she experienced what Daniel's showing us, this wall where nothing about you can change the situation. This wall is not going away. I think what this does for us is it begins to teach us these famous words from the, John the Baptist in John 3.8. It teaches us the experience. I am not the Christ. You are not the Christ. The Christ, Jesus Christ himself, is the strength. He is the one. He is the, the, the wholeness, the fullness, the unity, the absolute self-existent, never-ending, always loving, never-stopping person himself. He is the redeemer. You are not. He is the sustainer and upholder of life. You are not. You depend on him. You need him. We learn in this experience of recognizing that we are absolutely stuck in our existence, that I am not the Christ. This wall teaches me that Jesus and Jesus only is the way forward, and he must do it. He must do it in his own way, in his own time, but it must only be him. I cannot change this, right? You experience the wall in Abraham's life. Abraham ran into the, the promise, God's going to provide an heir. Not only did God not provide an heir in his own timeline, Abraham decided to get around the wall by trying to figure out something else with Bathsheba. Not Bathsheba, who was it? Who? Hagar. Sorry. My Bible knowledge, guys, I don't know it that well. He tried to get around the wall. Did not work out for him. Yet, in God's own time, God answered his promise for Abraham in his own way. We freak out at the wall, thinking that the wall, this inability to move forward is somehow a problem that we must fix. But Daniel was realizing, and we're going to finish the chapter out with this, that God himself pierces into that darkness, comes into that wall experience, and we realize that God himself and his love is the only way forward. You are not the Christ, and yet you have a Jesus who deeply loves you. So let's finish out this chapter by looking at the experience of surprising strength verse 18 to 21. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me and said, and he said, oh man, greatly love, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And then as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And he said, let my, and I said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return and fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is instructed, inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So here's what happens, right? We finally get to the crux of the chapter where Daniel's like, all right, give me this message that you've come to give me. And Gabriel is like, peace, got to go fight. <laughs> and Daniel's like, wait, I thought you were here to strengthen me. I got strengthened. Tell me the message, right? You strengthened me. Now tell me what you're here to tell me. And Daniel's like, dude, I, I got, you know, Conor McGregor's over here. I got to go take care of this. I got to go fight. Like, this is my, my deal. I think the answer, you, have, you can feel, the answer came. Daniel missed it at first. I don't know if you missed it. Verse 11 and 19 have this amazing phrase in them. Verse 11 says, and he came, said to me and came to me and said, O Daniel, man greatly loved. And then, here we have again, 
verse 19, O man, O Daniel, greatly loved. Right, you see, Daniel was expecting some clarity on like, okay, how do we resolve this Bible prophecy stuff? I don't understand what's going on. Give me an answer. And God says, here's the answer. You are greatly loved. Right? We expect one clarity, one type of clarity. We want the circumstances of our lives resolved. We want the Bible to make perfect sense. We want our Bible charts to kind of figure it all out, what's going to happen at the end. We want res- resolution, right? This last week, if anything, shows everybody wants a resolution, don't they? They want clarity now. But God says, amidst all of that, you must experience this word to you. You are greatly loved. This happens in Jesus' life. You have a Jesus' baptism. I don't know if you guys remember this. Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, 17. Jesus comes out of the water, and God says from heaven. Could you imagine being here for this? God says from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If there's ever anything that would give you an assurance of God's love, this is it. And then at the transfiguration of Jesus, just a few chapters over in chapter 17 in Matthew, this is where uh, Jesus is on the top of the mountain, Moses and Elijah pop up, like, dude, like, that's like, that's like trying to figure out a presidential election and like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln show up and say, boing, here's the answer, right? Jesus, top of the mountain, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased to listen to him. And then another mountain in Matthew, Jesus walks up a dusty mountain and experiences the forsakenness of God. This is my forsaken son. Why is Jesus on that mountain? Being forsaken by the eye of the Father. He is experiencing the darkness, sin, and brokenness and despair of our own lives and being left to our own devices, being left to the spiritual darkness that we live in, being left on our own. He is experiencing that in our place so that in his resurrection, God says joyfully and with a spotlight right on you, you, oh, greatly loved. You, whom I love deeply, you are the treasure of God's heart in heaven. He delights in you who are in Jesus. He says, oh, Adam, greatly loved. Oh, Caitlin, greatly loved. Oh, Michelle, oh, Shannon, oh, Dave, oh, Eli, oh, Caleb, oh, Matt, oh, whoever, you are greatly loved. That is what he says to us. And that is the strength of our lives, that the whole heart of God's eternal existence, because of the great saving work of Jesus Christ, he looks at you and says, oh, greatly loved. Now, when you face that difficult job tomorrow, or the uncertainties of the election, whatever, or whenever pain and suffering or experiences are coming your way, do you have a strength that sails above those hardships? It resides in the heart of God himself for you. His heart is fixed in love on you. And when you experience that love, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, there is strength for tomorrow. There is strength for the crushing experiences of our lives. There is strength for fainting faith. There is strength when we have unseen battles. There is strength when we must utter those painful words, I am not enough.
because you are in the fixed gaze of God's love for you. And these words, O you, you are greatly loved. We experience the love of God as a strength for our pilgrim life. So let's pray. God, we we turn to you and say, we have nothing else but your love that will strengthen us. We have no way of experiencing strength for tomorrow, strength for the day, for the hardships ahead, for being ourselves yet again tomorrow. We have no strength and no hope apart from your specific love for us, which you freely give us in Jesus. And so we pray that as we walk through this pilgrim life together, that we would, to each other, continue to say, you are greatly loved for Jesus' sake. We pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.